All right, we're going to have a slightly shorter sermon this week because you've probably seen the Connection Fair out there, and we'd like to encourage you guys to go to that and then get some food with us. So we're going to dive right in here. We're in the third week of a four-part sermon series that we're calling The Fourfold Path of Forgiveness, and it's based on a book called The Book of Forgiving by Archbishop Desmond Tutu and his daughter Mfo Tutu. And so the four steps on this path to forgiveness include one, telling your story, the second one is naming the hurt, the third one is releasing forgiveness, and then the fourth one is either renewing or releasing that relationship. And so this week we're going to be focusing on the third step, which is granting forgiveness. Now, when I do premarital counseling with couples, one of the things that I like to ask them to do is to describe for me a time where they've had to apologize to one another. And not so I can get into like the gory details of their fight, but mostly so that I can see whether or not each one has the ability to say they're sorry to each other when they've messed up. And then I ask them whether or not they're able to actually let something go when the other has apologized to them, or if these same arguments get brought up over and over again in the relationship. Because if any of you guys have ever had a successful long-term relationship, and not necessarily even romantic, this is just you know, with your parents or your siblings or your friends, then we understand that relationships can't be sustained without a working system of forgiveness. And so it's imperative that we have a system where we're able to apologize for what we've done and then receive forgiveness for that wrong. You know, my, my dad once told me that the best marriage advice that he can give me is to frequently use the line, I'm sorry, honey, I'll try better next time. <laughs> Something I've had to use more than I want to admit. <laughs> right, and then the person that's doing the forgiving must actually have a way of forgiving, right? Like, of not bringing that thing up over and over again. Because there's like nothing worse, right, than making a mistake that you're truly sorry for and then the person that you love just like won't let it die. I've always thought that was one of the most challenging verses in the Bible, and it's, it's found in that famous chapter in 1 Corinthians on love, right? Love is patient, love is kind. The part where it says love keeps no record of wrongs. And if you have a system that keeps no record of wrongs, or, or if you don't have a system that keeps no record of wrongs, then a relationship either won't last or it'll be miserable, at least in those areas where you're not able to forgive or to receive the forgiveness. Now, I know there are times that when a person apologizes, their hurtful behavior continues. And sometimes their hurtful behavior continues over and over and over again to the point where you actually wonder if they're sorry or not. You know, and I think that usually to me is an indicator of a time where you probably need to get some outside help, whether because there's an addiction involved or maybe you need some help in learning how to communicate with one another because the issue is really with the way, you know, your friend or your partner is talking to you. And I just want to say that there's no shame in seeking help, either with some trusted friends or by getting a good therapist. I am, I am a big fan of good therapists. Um, you know, it's impossible to move forward and to really be happy in relationships without forgiveness, right? It's functional for our health and our happiness, even at the most basic level. Right, so I can kind of get these, like, small, everyday forgivenesses for making relationships function, right? Those things make sense to me. It's like, when I have to apologize to my wife, poor Rachel, when maybe on more than one occasion I might have left the sprinkler on overnight back in the backyard and we may or may not have had an astronomical water bill for the months of June and July. <laughs> I'm sorry, honey, I'll try better next time. <laughs> right, and then her needing to forgive me, which she graciously does so that we can move forward without her, you know, poking that at me all the time. Right, so that's like the everyday maintenance of things. But for like major things, 
You know, is forgiving someone for something much bigger than leaving the sprinkler on overnight, is that kind of like granting them a free pass? I had a friend once ask me if forgiving other people meant not holding them to account for the very real and the very damaging injuries that they've caused. That doesn't seem fair. You know, but forgiveness in the Christian tradition doesn't mean saying, I forgive you, so like, let's just pretend like this didn't happen. Right? Forgiveness, it can't and it doesn't erase harmful events. It doesn't erase wrongs. It doesn't erase the effects that they have on us. Right? It doesn't deny the reality of the injury that's been done. In fact, healing demands an honest reckoning. Right? In order to truly heal, an honest accounting of the event has to be brought to light and it has to be dealt with. And we've talked a lot about that in the last couple of weeks where we've talked about telling our story and naming the hurt. But it was reminding me of a few years back when I was at a neighborhood party. And at that party, I was talking to an older man and he's a uh, couples therapist here in town. And he said he's been doing this work for decades. And I don't remember exactly how this came up, but I do remember him telling me that in his experience, he said the number one predictor of whether or not couples, um, where there's been an infidelity, whether or not they can get past that infidelity, the number one predictor is whether or not the person who cheated is willing to talk through the details of the affair. I thought that was really interesting. He said he'd found that if the one who had had the affair couldn't do that, then the person who had been cheated on is just like left to their own imagination to fill in the blanks. And that that's just too much for most people to bear. And he said it's really only in bringing the whole event to light that the two people are actually able to look at the situation honestly in all of its goriness and messiness and then decide whether or not they can move forward with the relationship. Because you have to be able to observe the wounds to, whether, to know whether or not they're fatal or whether or not they can actually heal. Right? If you move forward just assuming that your wounds are not fatal and you refuse to treat them at all, even the ones that might not have been fatal might bleed out. So as I wrote this sermon, I was thinking a lot about the story of Jesus um, and his interaction with the disciple Thomas after he was resurrected. And how Jesus, you know, he went through some really traumatic things. He was tortured in the rawest sense of that word. You know, he'd had people whip him with a whip that had pieces of sharp bone to where his back was shredded. He had had crown of thorns stuck on his head. He had been actually just beaten on his body. He was betrayed by a close friend. He had been abandoned by many of his other friends. And then he was brutally killed in a way that was a long and slow and painful death. And yet, after he rose from the dead and he went and he appeared to his disciples, he didn't hide his wounds or his scars. Right? In his life, there are accounts of Jesus. You know, he, what, he healed the lame, he healed the sick, he healed people who had leprosy, he healed the blind, he healed the deaf. So presumably, if he had wanted to, he could hide his scars if he wanted. Right? In his resurrected body, he could have chosen to not have those be a part of him, but he didn't. John 20 20 to 29, here's the story of him seeing Thomas. It says, now Thomas, who was one of the 12, was not with the disciples when Jesus initially came. So the other disciples, they told him, we've seen the Lord. But he said to them, okay, well, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and I put my finger where the nails were and I put my hand on his side, I won't believe. So a week later, the disciples were in the house again and Thomas was with them. And though the doors were locked, Jesus came and he stood among them and he said, peace be with you. And he said to Thomas, come, put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it on my side. Stop doubting and believe. And Thomas said to him, he said, my Lord and my God. 
And then Jesus told them, because you have seen me, you've believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. So this scene became particularly helpful to me after my own public ordeal, you know, where I was outed and all of that. And what happened to me was so painful. But I was reminded of this story at a time when I was praying, not very long after this church was planted. And when I was praying, I had this sense that one day I would be able to invite people to look at my wounds and to look at my scars and that they would be able to come close and they would be able to see them and touch them and I'd actually be able to talk about it in an intimate way. And those wounds and those scars wouldn't define me. They'd be part of me, right? They're part of my story now because even the best healing sometimes leaves scars and limps. But those things are no longer a part of a story of victimization but the story that comes after that. They're in the process anyway of becoming part of the story that comes after that, a story of redemption. So Jesus chose to keep his scars and to not pretend like the crucifixion and the torture and all that came before it never happened. It's written on his body. Right? The horror happened. His scars, they forced the disciples to come to terms with the story for what it was, not for what it was glossed over to look like. You know, Jesus' death and how it came about are just as important of a part of the story. It's just as important to understanding his purpose and his calling and actually who he is, as is the resurrection and what comes after. And the thing about Jesus is that even with his scars, he doesn't remain a victim. Right? And he shows us that the way to move from being a victim to a hero in our own story is to forgive. And we don't forgive to forget what happened, to be rid of the scars, to scrub them off. And we don't forgive for the benefit of the one who hurt us. We forgive others of the scars on the terms that are of everything for our own benefit. You know, science is now showing us that there are actually tremendous uh, physical and emotional benefits to being able to forgive other people. You know, psychological wounds and emotional wounds, we're told, are now actually, we can see that they manifest in the same part of the brain as physical wounds. You've probably heard Ken say that. I think he was the first person that told me that a few years back, and I thought that makes so much sense. Because, you know, sometimes psychological and emotional wounds can just hurt so bad. And so forgiveness has been shown to do all sorts of things, like reduce depression, increase hopefulness, decrease anger, improve spiritual connection, increase emotional self-confidence, People who are able to forgive, they have fewer health and mental problems, they have fewer physical symptoms of stress, and all of these things are things that I would be willing to bet that we all want in our lives. When we can't forgive, we continue to be harmed by the perpetrator in very real physical and emotional ways. The effect lingers. Desmond Tutu, he says, he says, without forgiveness, we remain tethered to the person who harmed us. We're bound with chains of of bitterness. We're tied together and trapped. Until we can forgive the person who harmed us, that person will hold the keys to our happiness. That person will be our jailer. When we forgive, we take back control of our own fate and our feelings. We become our own liberators. We don't forgive to help the other person. We don't forgive for others. We forgive for ourselves. Forgiveness, in other words, is the best form of self-interest. This is true both spiritually and scientifically, he says. Now, forgiveness is really taking back the power. Someone's used their power over you to harm you, and this is taking that power back. And it has to be unconditional forgiveness. If we offer forgiveness to someone conditionally, we're placing the power right back into their hands. Let me give you a couple of examples. So let's say you were recently fired from your job, and you blame a vindictive boss 
you've had a boss who's just been a total jerk. And if you say to yourself, okay, you know what? If she gives me back my job, or if that company gives back my job, okay, then I'll forgive them. They need to make things right first. Well, what does that do? That actually places the power back into their hands, right? Because they never have to give you your job back. So you're letting them control when you forgive. If you give me back my job, then I will forgive. And so then you can nurse your bitterness when they don't give you what you want, and the only person harmed in that scenario is you. Or if we maybe take it down a little bit here, we can imagine two siblings who are fighting. This is maybe a little more relevant to our everyday lives. And one of them says, I'm not going to talk to you again until you say you're sorry. I just thought, what sibling doesn't love it when their brother or sister says something like that to them? Right, you know, I'm the oldest of three girls, and I still remember that feeling. It was like, oh, just you wait. I can outlast you. You will have to talk to me again long before I apologize. I mean, it's like, oh, the power. Desmond Tutu goes on to say, he says, the problem is that the strings we attach to the gift of forgiveness become the chains that bind us to the person who harmed us. And those are chains to which the perpetrator holds the key. We may set the conditions for granting forgiveness, but the person who harmed us decides whether or not the conditions are too onerous to fulfill. And so we continue to be that person's victim. So unconditional forgiveness is a way of actually shifting the power back to the victim. Right? You control it. It's not contingent on anything that the perpetrator can say or do, and it's good for your physical and your emotional health. Otherwise, our bitterness, our obsessive thoughts, and our anger will sometimes literally drain us of life. And the thing is, is that we're so interconnected. And this is where I think that Desmond and Mpho Tutu have a much keener insight into forgiveness than some of us Westerners do. Because many Africans, and, and I hate to just say this as like a lump, because Africa is a huge continent that is diverse and filled with all sorts of, you know, different thoughts and philosophies. But I think it's generally true that south of the Sahara, many Africans have the worldview that everything and everyone is connected. It's this idea that I am because you are. I am because you are. And the idea that we're part of a larger fabric of reality that's woven together where each part is affected by the other parts in ways both large and small. And so families and friendships and communities crumble when there are large pockets of unforgiveness and broken relationships in this mystically connected web. And so this worldview recognizes that we have a shared humanity in this fabric of life and a shared interest in healing. And when we recognize this shared humanity, we can then empathize with others, even with people who have harmed us really deeply. We talk a lot about empathy here at Blue Ocean. And empathy is just the ability to put yourself in someone else's shoes and to try and see life the way they see it, to maybe try and access their feelings and why they're acting the way they're acting. And I know that it's helped me in a very personal way to be able to have compassion on people who have harmed me, to just imagine what their lives must have been like up to that point for them to have acted the way they acted. You know, how much hurt and rejection and neglect they must have known and how powerless they must feel on the inside to have a need to have such power over others. And that actually wells up some compassion in me. Or if it's a person of privilege who's done harm to you, or maybe even a system of privilege, someone who hurts you without realizing it because they don't understand how their words affect those who are not like them. I imagine that how they see the world must be just so impoverished, and I feel sorry for them. 
You know, I dealt like with someone like that this week. It's a man who's um, enacting policies to exclude LGBTQ people from a large Christian organization. And I realized at a certain point of interacting with him that he just really can't grasp what it's like not to walk in privileged shoes or to walk in less privileged shoes. And so they limit without even knowing it their relationships and their connections with people not like them. And I thought, there's such a poverty to that. There's such a poverty to that because there's such a rich vastness in the human experience and all of our different ways of seeing the world and of expressing the ways that we've seen the world that bring joy and love and connection and insight into our lives. And when I can reach that place, I can then recognize that there are parts of me that are equally impoverished. Because my own experiences, because of my own particular privileges that can limit my connections. And I can recognize that there are things that I do, and I say that hurt other people, oftentimes unintentionally. And there are ways that I act that come out of my own sense of powerlessness, or my own hurt, or my own, you know, stuff. Now, I might not be doing damage on the same level as some other humans. We're not all Joseph Stalin. But we are all capable of harming and hurting others. And if I had lived the same life that that other person had lived, maybe I also would be capable of that kind of harm. And so it's recognizing our shared capacity to hurt, hurt, to, um, hurt others that helps us access grace and empathy for the people who have hurt us. You know, as the Apostle Paul puts it, he says, we've all sinned and fallen short of God's glory. That's where he's trying to give us this different perspective. Saying we're all equal here. We have all sinned, each and every one of us. Or as Jesus said, I like Sylvia brought this up in her in her testimony this morning in that scene where the, the men are gathered around to stone the woman who's accused of adultery. And Jesus says, let he who is without sin cast the first stone. When we adopt this mystical interconnected view of the world, we can see how very alike we are and how very in need of forgiveness each and every one of us is. And I can forgive others because I've received undeserved forgiveness myself many times, the water bill being the least of it. You know, we are all in need of that kind of grace and forgiveness. My wife laughed at that. <laughs> and sometimes a process of forgiveness can mean forgiving yourself. In fact, that's often a part of, that's probably a part of all of our stories in some way. And that can include forgiving your younger self. You know, having compassion on younger versions of you and giving yourself permission to grow and to change. You know, I've been thinking a lot this last year about how I've had to forgive my younger self for being disconnected from my own body and my own emotions in such a way that you know, I got a late start on things like love, marriage, maybe kids. You know, and I look at that and I can count it as something that, that was lost in my life, but it's really only by forgiving myself and coming to an acceptance that I'm human, I did the best I could with the worldview that I had, with the circumstances I had, that I can make peace with that. And I can start to change that story from one of being sort of a victim of a system to one of beauty. You know, I wouldn't have met Rachel. And I would wait another 36 years to, make, to meet that woman again. And I wouldn't have gained all of the wisdom that came with that tough process of coming out and coming to terms with myself. Right? You know, we know these processes. These can be invaluable. These are where wisdom is gained. You know, we know we're healing when we can start to tell a new story, and it's a story of healing and redemption. And so for me, that story includes Rachel, it includes all of you, it includes the bigger thing that God is doing in our nation, where he's making spaces for more gay people to connect with Jesus. 
You know, I was listening to NPR on the way into church this morning, and they had an interview. Um, since it's 9-11, it's the 15th anniversary. They were interviewing the CEO of, I can't remember the company, the big investment company that lost so many. Yeah, 600 and something people. And anyway, he was the CEO then, he's still the CEO now. And he said something, and I turned to Rachel and I said, that's my sermon. Essentially, he, he said, you know, on 9-11, he said, what I do, the way we celebrate, not celebrate, honor it, or remember it in our company, is we ask for people to like just uh, waive their, their salaries for that day. And they don't have to, he said, but really everybody does. And then we take any money that comes in that we earn on that day and we give it away to people in need. And it's like $12 million. And he said, this is a way that we can stop being victimized by 9-11 and we can take that story and we can make it so that when they go home, they feel like 9-11 is something good, that it's something that they're doing for good. And I thought, you know, that is really the sign where you're being able to start to forgive and to heal when you're able to take the story of being a perpetual victim and you feel like there's something changing in your heart to say, God can make something beautiful out of that. I want to say, I don't think God ever like causes bad things to happen to us in order to like make us better people or whatever. You know, if God's truly good and I have come to believe he must be, then he's not like sitting up there dreaming bad things so that he can make us better people. But I do agree with what the Apostle Paul says when he says that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. And that means that whether things that happen to us are good or bad or ugly, that God can take the pain and he can take the scars and he can turn them into something beautiful. And that he can use our stories and our healing to help bring healing and wholeness, not just to us, but also to other people in that human fabric that's been woven around us. All right, we're going to go ahead and move into a couple of minutes of silence. If you're new, we like to take two minutes where we're just quiet and we allow God to speak to us. It doesn't have to be completely quiet. Humans, babies, make noise. Not worried about a little bit of noise. But in this space, what I'm going to invite you to do, if you are willing and would like to, is we're going to spend about a minute just slowing our breath and imagining ourselves just connecting with our own bodies. Like, pay attention to what's going on, how your body feels, what parts of you are stressed, just sort of noting what's going on. And then move that outward and feel yourself sort of connecting to the people around you, the people next to you here in this room. And at that point, I'm going to interject and I'm going to come in and give a little bit more of a guided meditation and then pray a prayer. So let's just spend this first time connecting to ourselves and to the people around us. Say, come Holy Spirit and be in this space. still in this space, 
you can just visualize sort of that fabric that holds all of humanity together. And notice where there are some points where maybe there are some sort of holes or some parts of the fabric where there are some tears. And we can imagine that those are places where there are pockets of unforgiveness, whether these are systems of injustice, or whether they're particular people that they represent to you, where there's like a disruption in the system. And as we focus on those spaces, you can either pick somebody out who you might be able to do this with at this time, or think about a system. And I'm just going to pray a prayer expressing a willingness to release forgiveness. I will forgive you. The words are so small, but there's a universe hidden in them. When I forgive you, all of the cords of resentment and pain and sadness that had wrapped themselves around my heart will be gone. When I forgive you, you will no longer define me. You measured me and assessed me and decided that you could hurt me. I didn't count, but I will forgive you because I do count, I do matter. I am bigger than the image that you have of me. I am stronger, I am more beautiful, and I am infinitely more precious than you thought me. I will forgive you. My forgiveness is not a gift that I'm giving to you. When I forgive you, my forgiveness will be a gift that gives itself to me. And so Lord, we recognize that sometimes there can be a sense of powerlessness if someone's just been really harming us, especially over the long term. And so we just ask for the help of your Holy Spirit to be able to at least start a process of forgiving them. We ask for your empowerment. We ask for your blessing on this. We ask for your gentleness and your patience in our healing. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.